In fact, I actually remember when I first started anaesthesia um, early on in the UK, there was this thing called the Cardiff Palliator, which was the first ever PCA pump that was ever made. It was about twice as, like a double car battery. It was huge. (laughs) (laughs) It was quite (laughs) And it was sitting in our our (laughs) delivery unit in Plymouth where I worked, but no one ever used it, even then, even though it was new. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. This week I have a special guest, uh, hopefully he'll be coming on um, fairly frequently. We're going to try and call him a few times because he's a wealth of knowledge. Uh, this is, um, do I still call you prof- Professor? You uh, Professor Paik? No, Mike Paik? Call me Mike, <laughs> Mike. goodness okay. sake. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've got heaps of um, interesting topics that I've um, approached him that we can hopefully do some um, recordings on, but um, this week he's managed to... Um, Meet, uh, meet together and uh, we're going to talk about um, a subject that he um, gave a talk on to the Friday Grand Round here at Kingwood uh, in the recent past, which is sort of, um, um, I'm sure will be interesting to most people. Um, it, was, it was based on you know, the sort of changes you've seen in, in uh, obstetrics and anaesthesia and medicine in general. Or, or, is, uh, that, is that correct? Uh, well, I think I'll, I'll, I'll stick largely to obstetric anesthesia, obviously. Yep. But, uh, yeah. Yep. Okay, so what? Um, so the opening question that Mike's given me to, to ask him is, uh, what was obstetric anesthesia like when you started, Mike? Uh, well, I guess it was pretty different because I started in the early 1980s um, and that was an era when uh, epidurals were still uh, relatively new and novel in terms of uh, labour analgesia. Um, and general anaesthesia, I guess, predominated uh, still at that time for yep. caesarean section. Um, and uh, technology was minimal. Um, so there have been a heap of changes both in sort of methods and how we do things and, um, and in some of the technologies available to us. Um, and then other changes as well, other than practice changes, you know, related. I might, um, I might even ask you, do you mind sort of describing to us how you actually got um, into the obstetric anaesthesia in the first place? What was your path that you oh, right. um, that sort of led you into it? And you obviously... Yeah, um, okay. Some, something sort of... Um, made you, you know, caught your eye and you, you followed mm. it? Um, I guess, uh, well, I did the junior term uh, for six months of Diploma of Obstetrics, so I liked the obstetric side of it, but <laughs> I couldn't see a lifestyle being an obstetrician. Yeah. Uh, even at that stage, it was terribly daunting. And I was I was in the UK as well. We were doing a one-in-two roster, you know, which was just about 100 hours a week, so yeah. that was all pretty bad. So anyway, then I did some anaesthesia, uh, eventually became an anaesthetist, um, and um, I still like the obstetric side. I discovered in anaesthesia that I like the regional side of things yep. as well, uh, and the pharmacology. And so I immediately sort of branched into obstetric anaesthesia quite early on, um, and got a job in a women's hospital as one of my first jobs as a consultant. So yep, and then I went from there. Yep, sounds good. And um, yeah, so uh, so you've. You want to tell us more about um, you know what things used to be like yeah. back in the back in the day? Sure. So, um, okay, I guess for caesareans um, back in the eighties, at least they were mostly done under, as I said, generals or epidurals. Uh, as time went on, um, there've been a lot of changes in in the way we do the general anaesthetics. I guess as well, you know, um, up until recently it was, and then it was thiobenzone. Uh, and back then there was still uh, great concern about the volatiles and it was we never used to give more than half a mac of volatile 
with and nitrous oxide and the rates of awareness were pretty scary yep. uh, um, so that things have changed a bit there obviously with uh, and there are quite a few sort of practice changes in general in the season now happening I guess with propofol and new airway devices and uh, um, you know more volatile and um, opioids coming in to use more and so on pre-delivery all those sort of things um, in the 1990s there was a big sea change because um, Sprotty came out with his Sprotty needle in the early 90s and suddenly the world woke up to the fact that there were pencil point needles which had actually been around for a long time but weren't being used so right. everyone was using cutting edge needles for spinals with high rates of postural puncture headache in the obstetric population. So they, we never did spinals. Uh, and okay. then the spotty needle came out, the pencil point needles got rediscovered, and people started to do spinals for caesarean. And then and that boomed because, you know, clearly it, it was a good technique. Um, so from the early 90s, that was, that was a major change. And then over time, you know, with the maternal, maternal mortality reports and things like that, it became clear that um, regionals were safer and spinals became the, the norm. Well, it's interesting. So, because I, I, don't, I don't know where I got this idea from, but I thought people were scared of doing spinals and obstetrics because of the um, cardiovascular side effects, you know, the need for vasopressors and. Yeah, and that, was well, that one of, not, was that so, not, true? Not, not really was so much. I mean, back in those days, we were. Uh, we were using treatment only and with ephedrine. I mean, ephedrine's a classic example. So, you know, ephedrine was the go-to vasopressor and we never used anything else. Yep. Um, and that was based, you know, ironically on animal studies and for 40 years it became the dogma, um, even though we now know there are, there are better vasopressors available. So it was treatment with ephedrine and uh, despite the fact that there were a lot of women who used to get quite severely hypotensive and get sick and uh, collapse and so on. It wasn't, you know, it was manageable. And then we started to do infusions. Um, and it wasn't until the early 2000s when, um, you know, phenylephrine uh, had some research done on it and uh, we changed over here at King Edward yep. uh, at that stage to that. And obviously it's a much more suitable drug. Of course, now we've got nor norepinephrine being noradrenaline being looked at as a, an alternative to phenylephrine yeah, as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so spinals became the norm. So that that was a major change, uh, I think. Um, in fact, uh, I've got some data from that I uh, looked up from one of the audits I did back in 1995, and at that stage, uh, only two percent of all the cesareans were done under spinal. Wow, that's amazing. Isn't it incredible? So, um, and uh, the mostly done under CSEs and epidurals here, so GAs were already down to only 12%. So, you know, the current figures now are, are um, sort of 8% for GAs and um, spinals overall, I think, are something like, um, well, they must be over 50%, you would think, but we still yep. obviously do a lot of top-up epidurals as well. What do you think in the early 80s was the... Um uh, the rate of GAs here was up. Um, it, it obviously or? varied from country to country, and it still does. You know, and there's still some countries that are doing quite high rates. But um, I'd say in the UK and Australia back then, it would have been sort of probably 50-50. Most of the the a lot of the elective ones were done under GA, but epidurals, as through the 80s, became more and more widely used, and then epidural forces their section became more widely used so yeah. Um, yeah we were doing elective ones as well as the as some from labor with epidurals and then a lot of the elective ones were, were GA. All right interesting so um, 
Uh, what's my next question, Mike? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, well, I, I can tell you a bit more about some of the changes in labour as well because that's a, oh, another yeah. big yeah, area. So, um, you know, as I said, epidurals just gradually increased in popularity during the 80s and that, that stage we were most women were getting 0.5% bupivacaine as their, as yep. their uh, concentration for labour epidurals. Um, and then gradually people started to use the, the lower dose concentrations in combination with opioids, particularly fentanyl, sufentanyl. Um, and although uh, most people probably don't know, but there was a, there's a guy called Peter Brownridge who used to practice in Adelaide at the Women's Air in the 1980s who was a real pioneer that has never been given any recognition worldwide. But he was doing low-dose combination epidurals in labour all through the 80s, long before the rest of the world sort of right. really caught on, um, and also doing a lot of CSEs and things as well. Um, so he was a really interesting guy. In the late 80s, um, patient-controlled epidural analgesia appeared as, a, as the first um, research um, paper came out on that as a method of labour analgesia and yep. that was something I really um, embraced because um, it seemed to be giving something back to the woman and uh, so I did a lot of research on it. In fact I actually remember when I f first started anaesthesia um, early on in the UK there was this thing called the Cardiff Palliator which was the first ever PCA pump that was ever made. Yep. It was about twice as like a double car battery. It was huge. <laughs> so it was quite you, you <laughs> and it was sitting in our in our <laughs> delivery unit in Plymouth where I worked, but no one ever used it, even then, even though it was new. Um, Anyway, later on, the PCA became, in the 90s, sort of a technique that started to be used. Um, and, uh, yeah, here I did a lot of research and tried to introduce it. But like all things, one thing I did learn was it takes a long time to implement change. And it, even though everyone knew it was a good idea, you know, it took 15 to 20 years before most places around the world have embraced PCEA and used that as their technique for labour analgesia. Yeah. Quite interesting. So, yeah, back in, again, some audit data from 89 to 94, we were doing, midwives were doing the bolusing in labour. 95% of our epidurals, 4% yep. were PCEA, and now 97% of our epidurals in labour are PCEA. Yeah, and I imagine the other 3% are only because basically they deliver sort of half an hour after you get Probably, there. Probably, yeah. <laughs> they don't get the chance to get it set up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the... There are other changes in labour as well. You know, there's been obviously IM pethidine sort of gradually disappeared in most places, and and here was substituted with with morphine, which is quite interesting. Seeing there's no data on morphine, but you know, <laughs> it probably seems like a good idea. Um, and you know, PCA remifentanil appeared. Um, there were, you know, very rarely we use fentanyl for PCA's IV in labour, but. Um, Remifentanil uh, PCA came in in the early 2000s, and so that's still in most places still uh, not used a great deal. But you know there yeah. are some centres around the world that have embraced it and offered it to everybody. Yeah. Um, and just re very recently, we've got some some big publications that have come out from from three different places uh, with thousands of women having PCA remifentanil, and you know that's really interesting and good data to have now. Yeah, I think we're going to try and do a podcast on on, on that specific topic with um, Dr. Rutledge. Yeah, maybe sounds, next week. Sounds sensible. Um, so, yeah, I guess the other things that have changed. Um, what else can I think of? Things like fluid management. So, you know, we we used to give a heap of fluid for our uh, cesarean sections uh, yep. to try and prevent hypotension. Obviously, that's pretty much disappeared. Um, the use of intrathecal morphine is quite interesting. I think so. We were 
or big hospital for using patient-controlled epidural pethidine after caesarean sections for those women who had epidurals in. Um, and then over time, as we did more and more spinals, um, intrathecal morphine's really become the most common technique now. And uh, and that's happened worldwide. But again, it's been a slow process because you know there were there were plenty of places in particularly in America and plenty of publications on intrathecal morphine back in the 1980s, early 90s. But yep. it took a lot of the a lot of places around the world are still fearful of it and, and won't use it. You know, they yeah. think it's going to cause severe respiratory depression in these women after their caesareans, and we know yeah. that's not true either. Yeah, but, uh, just a lot of etching in some patients is yeah, probably the big true. problem, isn't it? Of course, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's some of the practice changes, I guess. Um, you know, obviously we've got um, uh, new technologies in terms of, you know, really good quality spinal needles and CSE and... Now we use ultrasound for, for various things and um, the whole changes that are happening in critical care with, with transthoracic echo and um, or, you know lung ultrasound, all those things are, are major changes in recent times that are happening. Um, I mean, back in the back in the day in the nineties, we had a two bedroom high dependency unit, um, which yep. was a with closed room with no was a nurse somewhere nearby. <laughs> but <laughs> it was it was hardly a high dependency unit. But that's yeah. all we had actually for both our, our high risk obstetric cases and our oncology cases. That sounds like the the intensive care units you see on uh, TV dramas and stuff, <laughs> yes. where there's someone with a, on a breathing tube and no nurse in sight. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> that's not real. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, maybe, I know. Or maybe it is. Yeah, I, I saw a film the other day and, and uh, yeah there was no monitoring on either you know <laughs> they were intubated and lying there but there's no monitoring <laughs> yeah maybe that is real I don't know it's a bit scary most of them are from uh, the US yeah exactly um, yeah so um, there have been other areas I guess yeah uh, so um, has anything else changed much that you've noticed what, what about uh, you know other areas yeah well look I mean things like teaching research and um, uh, that sort of stuff has obviously changed dramatically as well so you know we eventually got mannequins you know probably again 20 years ago or so and uh, we started doing our simulation training for our registrars um, in the early 2000s so I still remember when the um, the guys from Bristol came out and presented the the prompt um, citric emergency course here as the first one of the first places overseas ever to have it, and you know this hospital adopted it, and now it's been obviously those sort of courses um, and knowledge and so on have been adopted all over the, the world now as, as excellent training, team discipline training, uh, simulation stuff. Um, so yeah, that's a major change that's happened um, yep. in terms of um, <coughs> research. You know, when I first started, you'd read an article and some doyen of obstetric anaesthesia would say, you know, this is the way we should do it. So, you know, yep. Selwyn Crawford from Birmingham would say, you know, oh, we should be giving 10 or 15 or 20 mils of blood in a blood patch, not two. And so everyone said, yeah, okay, fine, <laughs> we'll do it. Um, and, th- and then there were a few small observational studies in various areas and animal studies, as I said, and so on. And they influenced practice dramatically. Um, and it wasn't really till the to the 90s and 2000s that uh, randomised trial evidence and large, big observational studies started to be done. Um, and, of course, now we've moved into the era of, of very large uh, randomised trials and big epidemiological databases that get looked yeah. at. And, yep. 
Um, so the whole world of research has obviously changed dramatically in terms of the evidence base we use to, to guide the practice that we do, which is good. Um, and there, there are more things that can happen in the future as well, obviously, in that area. Um, the other things, I guess, uh, yeah, um, changes in um, equipment. So uh, obviously in the obstetric side, the monitoring's just moved largely with, with monitoring in general and anaesthesia. Um, but, you know, um, we've got video laryngoscopes, which are, uh, you know, only been in the last 10 years, I guess, and um, uh, the use of supergotic airways um, yep. has, has been a major change as well. Um, uh, on the pharmacology side, if you look at um, things like oxytocin, is a, a good one to look at, I suppose. I th probably when I started in the 80s, I think we were still giving 10-unit boluses for right. for yep. caesareans, for example. Yep. Um, and then that went to five-unit boluses. Um, and then, of course, in the last 15 years, we've had um, know, plenty of information saying that those doses are probably well above so, what we need as well. So. <clears throat> so just for some of the listeners who, especially some of our you know, newer trainees, they've probably never even given given more than one or two at <laughs> a time. What, what used to happen to uh, people when you gave them 10? I mean, obviously... People who are, I usually um, contracted pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> usually, in my experience, because I remember seeing it done a few times, is, is uh, as long as they're high, normovolemic and you've got healthy hearts and things, nothing catastrophic happens. But no, no. Um, obviously, the side effects are a bit more prominent with those bigger yeah. doses. So, you know, more women who are feeling flushed and nauseous and uh, got a headache and etc. But, you know, there wasn't anything too drastic really um, yep. I think it was you know the, the maternal mortality reports from the UK identifying that those vulnerable high risk cardiac patients if you gave it to them then uh, if they couldn't increase yeah. their cardiac output sometimes they, they uh, it was a terrible collapsed case. So. Yeah, it was a terrible case I remember being um, described in one of those maternal um, confidential inquiries you know a woman who had a high spinal and um, then the anaesthetist gave 10 units and that was it Never, mm -hmm. never, you know, couldn't resuscitate them. So. Yeah, yeah. So it was more awareness of the hemodynamic changes yeah. in, in high-risk patients that that uh, led to the to the changes in dosing that have happened now. Yeah. Um, and now you you have a role as the um, chief editor for IJOA, you know, mm -hmm. Journal of Obstetric Anesthesia. Where do you think? Where do you see? You know, obviously you see lots of stuff coming in or getting um, submitted. Where do you think things are going in the future? It's, it's, it's a bit of a hard one, hard one to answer. It is a hard one to answer. Okay, so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thanks, Roger. That's a good one. Um, so yeah, I've been doing the uh, chief editor job for three years. Although I was the uh, looking after the obstetric papers for uh, anaesthesia intensive care for a long, long time before that. But obviously now I'm seeing you know, worldwide research in the obstetric anaesthetic field. So um, uh, I think. Some of the obvious changes are that um, there are quite a lot of uh, people looking at um, technologies. So, you know, a couple of the more interesting ones that I wasn't particularly familiar with that we get quite a few papers on gastric ultrasound, for example, yep. looking at, you know, um, gastric content, um, starting to get a few on um, you know, things like lung ultrasound as well and, and that yep. role in the obstetric setting. Um, we are getting some on... Um, the nerve sheath diameter. You know, so this is all looking for uh, which is, intracranial pressure yeah, and preeclampsia and things, Correct, isn't it? Yeah. it is, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. that's a technology that I've never seen used still. Well, I haven't seen it used either, but I have no. seen it written about. Yeah, it's yeah. fascinating. So, yeah, um, there's, there's that sort of stuff coming in. Um, we're seeing a lot of meta-analyses, in my opinion, 
too many probably. Yeah. Um, so people trying to synthesise the, the research that's out there and, and, uh, and put the data together and, and coming up with better conclusions. And, you know, that, that's been a trend for 10 years in all, all the literature, I guess. But, um, you know, unfortunately, sometimes the quality of the trials that go into the meta-analyses is poor yeah. or people do meta-analyses on you know three studies with 600 patients and really that's a waste of time as, um, yeah. as well we might as well look at the biggest randomized trial um so you know that's uh, there, but there are plenty of those coming in and, and some of those are, are reasonably interesting you know i've just seen one on on opioid use uh, pre-delivery for GA cesarean section and looking at the different opioids and whether they impact on the neonate or not and you know, that one suggested that fentanyl might, so that's probably not a good one to choose, whereas they couldn't, uh, the trials didn't show uh, any impact if people used alfentanyl or remifentanyl. So, right, you know, because presumably they wore off or redistributed. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. such rapid redistribution and, and the remifentanyl is rapidly metabolised as well in the yeah. neonate. Um, so, you know, there's that sort of thing. Um, what else are we seeing coming into the journal? Uh, I don't know. All sorts of stuff. Um, <laughs> not so much, you know. There's there's not much happening in the pharmacological side at the moment. They don't, yep. you know, there are not many new drugs around and, and things like that. It's more on the technology side and and so on. Also, quite a bit of stuff on on simulation. Um, I mean, I think one of the biggest things that's changed in my whole career is the fact that we work as a team much better than we used to. That that uh, there's a lot of teamwork going on with other disciplines um, and the standard setting that's been done to try and you know raise the bar so that everybody's practicing at a reasonable level so yep. you know, there were very few guidelines and protocols and and uh, those sort of things um, back in the day whereas now of course that's that's routine and and mainstream and um, you know that's a good thing I guess one of the things we haven't touched on but we should wind it up soon but um mm. Have you seen, you know, what are the obvious changes in the patients? You know, yes, so that's, <laughs> that's a good, very so good what, point. What were, yeah, what, well, what, what yeah, were they like? You can uh, understand what, probably, the, um, what the main change is. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a few changes, older and fatter. I mean. Yeah, well, true. <laughs> so um, I wouldn't say um, you'd, I'd ever noticed the older part of it. That's clearly had uh, had some implications in upset practice but um yeah obesity is is clearly one that's uh, changed extremely dramatically so um yeah i mean it's just become routine to to deal with women of, of higher body mass index so yeah, i remember um even as you know only well what, 12 years ago 2007 i think it was we um um, Nolan McDonnell here in this department and I published a paper in one of the journals on a on a woman who had a body mass index of 60 and was accepted for publication because that was a pretty unusual event. Yeah. Now um, we routinely deal with women of BMI yeah. 60 in fact and at IGI I've had a couple of case reports um, sent in for publication on women with had a BMI of 100. Well okay there aren't too many case reports in that but we don't what's the point you know it's not yeah, much it, difference to someone different with, did you do yeah. anything well we basically offered you know one of them a letter to write yeah. a letter because yeah. it's not worth writing a case report because everyone's dealing with with women of yeah. super yeah. morbid obesity now so that, that that is a big change yeah i guess that's one of the you know epidemics in society is it it is i wonder whether they'll i have this idea that maybe you know because um, some countries have sort of done a good job with smoking you know mm. mm-hmm. um, maybe 50 years from now we'll look back and go you know I can't believe how um, how obese everyone used to be. Look at us now. So mm. You never know. That's, a, that's an optimistic view. <laughs> <thing. laughs> we can only hope. <laughs>
Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe we're going, oh, God, they were skinny back then. <laughs> the other, I guess the other thing I would like to mention just as we finish is, is obstetric hemorrhage, which is clearly one of the major complications that, that used to um, be pretty pretty frightening back in the 80s and 90s because although we, or this hospital, have been very fortunate in having a 24-hour blood bank service, um, yeah, there was a lot of... of massive obstetric hemorrhage that went on um, and although we know now that you know there's more of the center accretors accretors and increters ha- happening and so on um, yeah the way we manage obstetric hemorrhage has, has changed significantly over time um, and we haven't got time to go into that but it's uh, it's dramatically better and uh, we know a lot more about how to deal with it we know a lot more about what's happening yep. and um, that's been a huge change I think which has been fantastic yep well, that's really good so, and, and I just wanted to mention one other thing so I've had, been play, had a play with the website um, uh, yesterday and I've, I've put up a little um, poll um, which basically allows people to sort of nominate um, topics mm-hmm. that they might think that, that would be interesting and I guess it depends whether or not we've We've got anyone who um, knows enough about a topic to, to talk about it, but um, if anyone out there has any topics that they think we should, um, or that they'd be interested in us talking about, please um, go to the uh, the homepage and uh, you can type in your own topic or you can vote for one of the topics that's already there. Um, so I, I typed in about four topics just to start it off, and I think the at the moment um, the leading topic is Graham and Roger count to 2,000 in Hindi, so that's had one vote, so please... <laughs> We need some more votes to try and knock that off the top because I don't really want to do a podcast on that. <laughs> All right. All right, Mike, thanks for that. Um, we're definitely going to get you on the, on the podcast again in the future for some, some more interesting uh, topics. Thanks, Roger. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.obsandgynecritcare.org where there'll be lots of show notes and links to interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to. See you again next time.